today. We are studying uh, Malachi. Yes, and we only have one month left to study Malachi. That's just, I'm just not sure that's enough time for these next uh, two chapters, three chapters. But let's turn to Malachi chapter 2 and uh, look at this a very strong statement from Malachi or from the Lord through Malachi to the priests in Malachi's day. In Ezra, there is a record of those who returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. And in that record, you will read that there are a whole bunch of priests and Levites, something over 4,000 priests and over 200 Levites. And let me just explain for a moment the difference between priests and Levites before we look at this text that has those words in there. Remember, Levi was a son of Jacob, one of the 12 sons. And God gave it to that whole tribe to be responsible for the sanctuary, the tabernacle, carrying the tabernacle, taking care of the tabernacle, setting up the tabernacle, being gatekeepers uh, at the tabernacle. And then later on at the temple, the Levites did the same thing. They cared for the temple. They were the gatekeepers. They were the choristers and the instrumentalists. They were the choir. So the Levites had overall responsibility for the facilities, kind of like deacons in a church. Now the priests were a particular group within the Levites. Remember, the priests are all sons of Aaron. Both Aaron and Moses, who are brothers, are Levites. They're from the the tribe of Levi. They also, remember their father was Amram. And Amram was in one of the three clans of the Levite. Levi had three sons. Kohath, Merari, and Gershom. And Amram was a great-great-grandson of Kohath. So Aaron and Moses were Kohathites within the group of Levites. But it was only the sons of Aaron who were the priests. And the priests cooperated with all the Levites in taking care of worship, but the priests in particular were the ones who were supposed to be able to go into the holy place, and of course the high priest only, once a year, into the Holy of Holies. And the priests were the ones who handled the sacrifices. So they were the the ones at the very heart of uh, the, the ministry of worship. And we'll see more about their duties in just a moment. But that's a little bit of background on the, the priests as we move into this story in Malachi. As a matter of fact, I've listed a few things here about the priests in the Old Testament. These are the sons of Aaron. And let's notice what they did. First of all, they offered sacrifices in Leviticus 8 and 9. So they were the ones who would take the sacrifice that you would bring. They would be sure that it was cut up properly, that the things that didn't belong in the altar were put to the side and dumped, and that they were able to take the part that God wanted as a sacrifice, a burnt offering, and they would bring it forward and offer it. Secondly, they would adjudicate. And you see this in Deuteronomy 17. They would take cases among the people, and they would make decisions. Now, they especially would adjudicate issues of cultural, or rather cultic or ritual um, cleanliness. You know, if you wanted to know whether you had a disease that kept you away from the tabernacle or the temple, the Levites, or the priests, rather, would judge on those matters. But they adjudicated other issues, too. They also taught. And in Leviticus 10, 
you will find that God tells them. You're to teach the people. Now, you teach the people, first of all, how to worship. So they were the ones who led in worship. They were to teach the people how to worship and, the, and to teach them distinctions between what is a blemished lamb and what's an unblemished blemished lamb, for example. And they would teach on those important things, but they'd teach on everything. And you see this once again. Ezra is a great case of that. Uh, as we'll see in this next point, uh, they pray for the people. And Ezra, in chapter 9 of Ezra, prayed for the people as a priest. Now, a priest fundamentally is a person who is a mediator between God and man, and he is helping man draw near to God. So that's what a priest does for you. He mediates for you. He intercedes for you. He helps you draw near to the Lord. And he does that by teaching, speaking on behalf of God to you, and which is primarily what a prophet does. But a prophet comes with a revelation. A priest would take the revelation that's been given and apply it to the people in their own time. So, like myself, I'm, I'm not a prophet. I don't speak revelation. But I take the revelation that's offered and then apply it to our own day. Then they would also bless the people. They, the Levites, in general, the priests in particular, were given the duty, you see it in Numbers 6, to bless the people. So... They were told to raise their hands and they were given exactly what to say. And it's what you often hear pastors say at the end of a service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen. That's the Aaronic benediction, the priestly benediction. God gave them the precise words told him to do it, and he said, when you do that, they will be blessed. So the Lord's speaking a benediction or a blessing, a good word upon his people through the priests. So once again, the priest is mediator. And also the priest would discipline the people. And they gained their reputation actually here. In Exodus 32, they disciplined the people. They took the sword and killed some people because of their, because of their idolatry. And in Numbers 25, you'll also see it with Phinehas. Uh, where in Numbers 25, they disciplined the people for their disobedience and God raised them up and exalted them because they indeed took on the role of disciplining the people. Now, that's what priests in the Old Testament did. What about priests today? Well, a couple of things need to be said. First of all, the high priest is Jesus himself. You know, if, if the high priest was one person who once a year went into the Holy of Holies. <clears throat> the analogy in the Scriptures is, we're taught in Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest, not after the order of Levi, like this that we're studying, but after the order of Melchizedek. Who the heck is Melchizedek? Well, he's this mysterious figure in Genesis 14 who comes to Abraham from the city of Salem, which is later the Jerusalem that we know. And Abraham tithes to this mysterious figure. And this mysterious figure brings bread and wine and they have a meal. It's all very mysterious. Hebrews says that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek because the lesser tithes to the greater. And of course, it's true with us. By faith in Jesus Christ, we're sons of Abraham. Why do we tithe? Because we want to show that Jesus Christ is greater. We're the sons of Abraham. Christ is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we're the Abrahamites who are tithing to Melchizedek. When we tithe in the church, we're lifting up Christ as the one who is greater than ourselves. That's the most important reason to tithe, by the way, is to make a public declaration before men and angels that 
You are sons of Abraham. You are sinners. Christ is the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he, he deserves tribute from the battlefield, which is, of course, where Abraham had come from when he tithed to Melchizedek. So Christ is the high priest. But then who, is the, who are the priests? Well, 1 Peter 2.9 says we are the priests. You might want to take a look at that. Uh, 1 Peter, you'll find Hebrews, James, Peter. In 1 Peter 2.9, here is what Peter says. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. This is on page 2018. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So what Peter is saying is that Jew and Gentile who come to faith in God through Jesus Christ are the priesthood. That's the New Testament definition of the priesthood. So if you want to know who are the priests, it's anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ because they then have the vocation of priest. Now, I know some of you from your Episcopal, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, Orthodox backgrounds will say, well, hey, we, we, our priest is our pastor. Well, I just want to say that uh, that's probably a confusing use of term. We understand it because a priest is one who handles sacrifices and in uh, some people's view of the sacrament, there's a re-sacrifice going on. Or in the Episcopal Church, you have great emphasis upon the Eucharist and so the one who administers Eucharist is called priest because he's handling sacrifice. Uh, But it's very confusing because we're all priests. And when you give the name priest to one individual, you then, by implication, are saying we're not priests. Here's another confusing usage of terms. In Presbyterian churches, we call our pastors ministers. That's very confusing because we're all ministers. Really. The word minister just means servant. So if you want to call a pastor one of the ministers, that's, that would be fine. I mean, just technically speaking. I'm not saying go tell your churches to change their nomenclature. It's probably not worth a fuss. I'm just saying we need to understand that it is a confusing use of terms, probably not advisable. You know, you do have terms that can be used out of the New Testament like pastor, bishop, uh, maybe leader. There's some others that can be used, deacon. But uh, I don't think you'll find priest or minister used specifically for pastor or elder uh, bishop in, in the Bible, in the New Testament. So in the New Testament then, we are the priests, which of course leads us in to understand this next text very uh, poignantly because in chapter 1 and these verses in chapter 2, Malachi is addressing the priestly class. And lest we think he's just talking about clergy birds, that's the reason for looking at this and understanding the New Testament says that all of those obligations fall upon us if we're believers in Jesus Christ. So if you want to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to get all this responsibility upon you to be a priest. Now let's look at it then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, as Malachi continues his admonition to the priest. Remember the first chapter had to do with knowing that we're loved and then returning that love in worship. And especially, once again, preaching to the priests who are leading worship. We're the priests. 
So we got our lesson last week on worship. Now he continues on in the issue of covenant life. We're in a covenant. And we are the priests of that covenant. And we are the ones who are to administer that in communal life together. And this is the reason we speak of restoring God's covenant community. Malachi is seeking to restore real godly community in the church. And we're going to get some great clues in this text about how to do that in our own day. Let's look at it, Malachi 2. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. And nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned away, you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Uh, Dr. Baldwin, a commentator on Malachi, says that By comparison with this text, the prophets in the 8th century seem to be very polite. Uh, This is a scorching criticism. Very strong language. As we see, he says, I'm going to rub crap in your face. Uh, Taking the offal, the the dung, and the entrails of these animals, I'm going to rub it in your face. So, obviously, we ticked them off. Uh, (laughs) And let's, let's see what we did. Uh, Let's not do it again. (laughs) Uh, So in verses 1 through 4, what we're going to see is that God warns his priests against corruption. It's corrupting the office of priest and its functions and starting with the priestly heart that gets to him and provokes his righteous anger. He says, and now... This admonition, or you could inter- you could translate it, this commandment, this mishwa, this commandment, this admonition is for you, O priests. And he's showing us that if we dishonor him, he will curse us. So that means that all of us here who are baptized or communicant, confirmed members of the church, beware. 
You say, beware of what? Beware of presumption. Beware of simply saying, oh, well, I'm, I've been baptized. I've been confirmed or communic- I've been become a communicant member. That makes me a priest. I'm in. Yeah, you're in just to get cursed if you're not really careful. So just because you have your name on a roll somewhere or just because you went through a ritual or just because you go to church or just because people think you're a Christian may mean you're only making God angry. Because when you get on the inside, you have a lot more leverage to make him angry than when you're on the outside. So we have to be very careful with presumption. Just being in among the people doesn't necessarily please God. It can provoke him. And we'll see here what it is. But you'll notice, first of all, even our blessings will turn to curses when his anger is provoked. This is very strong language. I will curse your blessings. And he furthermore says, this has already begun to happen. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, look at in Deuteronomy and you'll see the blessings of the covenant. Or when we, when we started out with Hosea, we, we noticed that, that all the minor prophets are doing, they're, they're just preaching the Pentateuch in their own day. Pentateuch was written hundreds and hundreds of years, probably a thousand years before them. But they now are just simply taking the Word of God and applying it in their present day. And the way that applied in their day was that if you walk with the Lord, certain blessings will abound. And we know that's true in our day. It's just the blessings are delayed because our new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven at the end. So we have to wait. But the blessing will come eventually. But in their day, it would come at harvest time. If they walked with the Lord, he would give them their crops and they would prosper. What he's saying is the very things that you call prosperity are going to turn on you. And, of course, we do see analogies in our own day, don't we? We will say, oh, I'm just so blessed. What do we mean? Well, i got a new car, a house, good job, I'm healthy. Well, those are all the things the Old Testament people consider blessings. And the Lord says, those are going to become curses to you because you're going to use your money for for ill will. You're going to take your health and and use it to destroy your neighbor. You're going to take all these blessings I've given you and turn them into curses. That's an act of God. It's, It's His righteous judgment against the people who take the privileges and abuse them. And of course we see that happening over and over again. He says our descendants will be, some translate it, cut off. Here he says, uh, I will rebuke your descendants. Basically what he's saying is, the word descendants is just the word seed. So some say it has to do with the harvest. I will rebuke your harvests, your seed. But it's the same word that would be used for descendants. And often in the scriptures you get this statement that our Blessings will descend to the succeeding generations, and so will the curses. And that's the reason that you have in the NIV and some other translations just translating it descendants. I believe they're right. So God is basically saying what you do now has an effect upon succeeding generations. And as men who are called upon to be leaders in our families, in our churches, in the workplace, in this city, I can say to you this city will be affected for decades upon decades to come based on what you're doing right now. There's no doubt about it. Are we not experiencing both blessing and curse based on what our great-great-grandfathers did? Is this not true? Can you not see it very clearly in our own day? The same will be true with this generation. And they'll either rise up to bless us 150 years from now or they'll rise up to admonish us uh, when we're in the grave. So let's lay down good tracks right now. And let's show the great-grandchildren, great-grandchildren right now, 
how to live life in Memphis, Tennessee. You better believe it makes a difference. And it's not just a human phenomenon. It's the way that God blesses and curses a variety of people. And then he says, we will be humiliated. In verse 3b, he says, I will spread on your faces the awful. I'll rub dung in your face. Rub your nose in it. You'll be carried off with it. So we are going to be absolutely humiliated eventually by turning from the Lord. And so all the pride and arrogance of a nation that's been raised up through great wealth and military power, as soon as they turn from the Lord, all these great powers that you have, all this wealth, all this military power, all the intellectual expertise you have, it will be used to humiliate you. It will all turn on you. It will because God said so. And I don't know how it's going to happen, how it will happen. I don't know all the human machinations that will go through in succeeding decades and centuries. I'm just telling you it happens. It's the way the Lord works. He said it to the priests here. You've been given the greatest role in the universe to be someone who can teach the Word of God, who can worship God, who can handle spiritual things, and you turn these things around for your own luxury, comfort, and convenience. You have committed high treason. And when Christians who are enjoying the cultural uplift of a Christian culture, which we've enjoyed for hundreds of years, take the uplift in their culture and turn it in just to make themselves wealthier are going to be cursed with their blessings. Some of these 16-year-old birthday parties that have been, you saw in the paper yesterday probably in USA Today, you see it on TV, these kids who are giving these enormous parties, the last one, USA Today was in the Waldorf Astoria, 16 years old, she becomes a great star because TV makes a program out of it. What are we doing with these 16-year-old little girls trying to make celebrities out of them? It is absolutely insane what we are doing with our wealth. And you don't have to look to is it Kozlowski or whatever his name is and see how he has abused his privileges. It's going on all across the board. And what God is saying through his prophet is, you better be very careful with the privileges that come to my people. Uh, privileges that often come because I'm showing you how to live covenant life and I'm showing you how to live like a nation. I'm showing you how to live in community like a people. And so you start living that way and you start enjoying material blessings, you better be very careful that you remember where those came from and what they're for. And therefore, they're for the purpose of spreading His name, His glory, His honor around the world. And when you forget that, your blessings will turn into curses and above all people, we will be the humiliated ones. So if we dishonor Him, He will flat curse us. He is a dangerous God, in case you hadn't noticed. These are deep things, and I suppose if this were an evangelism class, this isn't the first thing I'd turn to. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, But let's just, you know, this isn't an evangelism class. It's a Bible study. We're finding out who God is. This is who He is. He's an awesome God. He's very powerful. And don't mess with Him. He is your Father. He loves you like a son. But he's, He's fearsome. And... He can cause a lot of trouble. <laughs> so notice B, not only if we dishonor Him, He will curse us, but if He admonishes us, it is for the purpose to bless others. His purpose is blessing. And so if He curses His own people or part of His own people, and this is what it means to have a remnant, you know, the remnant theology that we've seen in Micah, Isaiah, picked up in Romans, 
this remnant theology is that there is a people of God in this church. The church looks very corrupt sometimes, very screwed up, but there's a remnant in it. And so when he judges the church, he's cutting off the part that's unbelieving and disobedient in order to preserve the remnant so that through that remnant he blesses the world. That's his purpose, is to bless the world. So if he admonishes us, it is to bless others. He says in in verse 4, that my covenant with Levi may continue. Now this covenant with Levi, you could sometime later look up more in Numbers 25 and find out he speaks of this covenant with Levi, with Phinehas, when he took up arms to discipline the people. And God said there'd be a covenant with Levi. It's part of his overall covenant with his people. But it's a special covenant with the priestly duties of his people. Now, in verses 5 through 7, we get the reason for all of this, and that is that God reminds us of our calling. God reminds his priests of their calling. And this is so important for us. We've got to know who we are. What is our purpose in life? And uh, all of the books written on the purpose-driven life and you know how to live your life and how to know God's will in your life and all the rest, which I heartily commend, is coming from really a confusion on our own parts about why we're here and who we are. And what God does when he goes into verses 5 through 7 is to get down to this calling. What is your calling? Well, in verse 4, uh, and rather verse 5, he says, My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. So we are called to minister life and peace. That's our role. We are the ones who proclaim life and peace. We're the ones who model life and peace. And you find that when Jesus comes, he speaks often of what? Life and peace. You get that in John 10.10. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Believe on me, he says, John 6.47, and you will have everlasting life. Life is a key concept to Jesus' ministry, especially as revealed in John's gospel. So Jesus comes to convey life. Life, future life, And life now, which is a foretaste of the future life we're going to have. Real life. And what is real life? It is knowing God and the one he has sent. It's the knowledge of God. There's life. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 3, I think it is. He says that they may know you. This is life. That they may know you. So how do you convey life to the world? You convey it through knowing Him. This is the tragedy and the confusion of war in this world, no matter when we have it. We think war is going to accomplish all kinds of things, and it just hardly ever does. And you can look at the situation in Iraq. It's just a total mess. And no matter what we thought we are going to accomplish, we're probably not going to. It's not going to convey life. It's not going to convey justice and order, probably. Where does life come from? The knowledge of Jesus Christ. And any people is an arrogant people who think they can convey life and justice apart from the knowledge of God. They think they can do it without the gospel. They be wrong. I'm not against police Actions, I'm not against military interventions when they're necessary. All I'm saying is, 
It is an arrogance of a people who think they can accomplish more than they can accomplish by warfare. It's the arrogance of a people oftentimes who think they can do what only God can do and they can do it through warfare. they got another thought coming. And I think we're probably going to find out. It's true in Vietnam. You've got to have missionaries. Christian Missionary Alliance Church knew that. That's the reason you have Vietnam even to this day with CMA churches all over it. They were there with the gospel. And that is the enduring legacy of any life and peace in Vietnam right now. It's one of the most oppressive states in the world for religion. But the Christians are there because the Christian Missionary Alliance a long time ago sent their missionaries in there. It'll be true in Iraq. The lasting legacy in Iraq will be whoever has the vision to be sure that the Christian mission is in Iraq. And that is what will minister life and peace to the Iraqis long term. I guarantee it because it's in the Bible. We also come promising peace and we cannot communicate peace any way except through Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. And you're not going to get peace among ethnic peoples around this world, nor different nationalities, nor different religious groups, until they all bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Because when they do, He destroys the wall of hostility between peoples. There is no hope for mutual understanding in this city between Hispanics and Anglos, Hispanics and blacks, blacks and whites. There's no hope for any understanding apart from a common love for Jesus Christ. Not really. There will be no heart-to-heart relationship. There will be no justice. There will be no life, no peace apart from Jesus Christ. God says, I gave you the covenant of life and peace. Don't go looking for some other kind of covenant for life and peace. Take the one I gave you, the covenant of Levi, the the priestly covenant. And I've got a priestly covenant right now with a high priest who's the mediator of the covenant. And he's got a bunch of little priests who are the ministers of life and peace to the world. So be sure you stick to your knitting. You have a way to communicate life and peace to the world. Don't think you've got some other way. Now look, once again, I'm not speaking against military action. I have a son in the Marines. And he's doing honorable work. And I'm all for the Marines. I am. I'm just not for the Marines thinking they can do the work of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And woe be to us above all peoples in the world if we get it confused because we are the priests who've been given the ministry of life and peace. And before Jesus went to the cross, He said, Don't be afraid, my little flock. Peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. I give you real peace. And you will have peace. Even in the midst of a crucifixion that was going to take place the next day, I give you peace. And that's the only way you can have peace in a war-torn world. It's the only way you can have peace when your marriage is falling apart. It's the only way you can have peace when your teenagers are on drugs. How are you going to get peace? Only one way. Through this covenant that's being described. And that's the reason it's such a tragedy when men like the ones in this room abandon the covenant we've been given and abandon the means we've been given for life and peace and we go look for it somewhere else. Now, everything else, like peace in civil society, is an outgrowth of the peace of the gospel in our hearts. So we believe in civil justice. We believe in civil peace. We believe in civil rights. But that flows out of the heart of a people who have been brought into peace with God and with one another in their hearts. And then they work it out in civil society. And you cannot maintain it in civil society without the heart being right. Just watch. If we cease to communicate the gospel, if the people of God diminish in their numbers and in their power, you just watch America implode. 
Our forefathers said it very clearly. You cannot sustain civil peace and civil life without the use of the gospel and without Christ. It's impossible to do what we're doing. That's another arrogant act, I think, on our part to think we're going to go over militarily and create a democracy. Are you kidding? Democracy was created over 500 years of training from generation to generation in the gospel. And you've got to have an underlying mentality and relationship with God and with each other to create mutual rights. And we've become arrogant about this. We thought we dreamed it up. We thought Thomas Paine or some other person gave us this out of the great intellectual history of the Enlightenment. And we were arrogant and didn't realize, no, we were given the gospel. And that's what enabled this whole thing to make sense in our own minds. And this was the discipline. The discipline is not the police knocking on your door. The discipline is the Holy Spirit in your heart. And without that discipline, you can't have life and peace. You can't have society. And that's the reason, gentlemen, the first obligation for us is to stick to our knitting, to be priests of the covenant of life and peace. And when we stop proclaiming the gospel, we stop living it out in church life, we stop living it out in our individual lives, we have abandoned our civic duty. Because civic peace cannot come from enforcement on the outside. And we have multiple Multiple examples in history to prove this to us. So, once again, God is reminding us who we are. We're the ones who know Him, which means we have life, which means now we know the secret to the universe, which means we can now minister life and peace to others. And B, because of this, we must respond with reverence and awe. He says in verse 5b, My covenant was with them, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave gave them to Him. This called... For reverence. And he revered me and stood in awe of my name. That's the reason it worked for him because I gave him life and peace and he worshiped me. He acknowledged me as the great king. He bowed down before me. He actually was in awe of my power and of my name. He wasn't arrogant. He didn't go about thinking that world, the world is made up of a bunch of accidental collisions of molecules. He understood I made this world and then I called him out. He knew this. And so worship, once again, is our first obligation to be in reverence and awe. And you get this, of course, in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. And then in verse 6, he says he spoke the truth. This is what made him effective. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. I was talking to one of my children the other day about a matter with one of his or her friends. And they just said to me about a certain relationship with a person where they were, well, they just lied. I thought, they just, they just lied. Yeah, that's commonplace. People just lie when they get in trouble. And, and, and my child said it as though, well, this is an everyday occurrence. And unfortunately it is. People just lie. And God is thundering from heaven. He said, when I made this covenant with my priests, they didn't just lie. They fell down before me as the God of all truth and they acknowledged truth. And they wouldn't speak an untruth without knowing that they were profaning my name because my name is on them and my name is a true name and therefore there's not to be any falsehood from their lips. Your lips are sacred. Do you realize this? Your lips are more sacred than the cup in which we put the Eucharistic wine. 
Your lips are more sacred than the wafer that we break for communion. Because your lips have the name of Jesus Christ on them. And what you say represents Jesus Christ. This is the kind of attitude that anyone in reverence and all before the Lord realizes. I'll never forget the thundering charge I got from an older minister when I was installed on one occasion. And he called me to integrity, telling the truth. Gentlemen, we've got to be people, especially those of you who are in full-time ministry, but I would say anybody, you're all in full-time ministry. Some of you get paid for it some other way. Some of us get paid by tithes and offerings, but our lips are sacred and truth has to come from there and especially the truth of God. He says, you'll notice he says, true instruction. The word there is Torah. The law comes from your lips. You know the law. And I'm not talking about the law that keeps you out of trouble in civic society. I'm not talking about the civil law. I'm talking about the moral law. It's on your lips. You know it. And wise lips speak the knowledge of God, as the Proverbs say. So we know the law. And that comes from our mouth constantly. When you ask me about anything, the law of God will come out some way because I've studied the Scriptures. This is what He's saying all of us are to be, people who can say that. I've studied the Scriptures. And when I speak on a matter, it's because I'm coming from the law of God. If you think about this immigration reform issue, does Deuteronomy come out of your lips? Does Leviticus come out of your lips? Where God has something to say about aliens? Is that part of your theology of immigration reform? I don't know how to work it all out. I'm not an expert in public policy. But I do know this. God has said something about aliens. And we have to figure out how to apply it in our own day. And that can be a huge debate. And well-meaning Christians can disagree on this. No problem. As long as truth comes from our lips. And not just political pragmatism. And not just defending your own place and your own ethnic group. But the law of God comes from our lips on everything about which we speak. Be very careful because that's your role. That's your role in this life. You are the ones who speak wisdom to a dark world. You're called out for this purpose. If you're a Christian today, you were called out for this purpose. So let's get good at what our purpose is. And then he, he says, nothing false on our lips. Not only do we speak the law, but we do not speak false things. D, we must walk with God in peace and uprightness. And I've listed some things there. You know, Psalm 1, 1, that famous psalm uh, that speaks of the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. And the psalmist just simply begins by saying, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So, of course, the righteous walk in the counsel of the wise. So who are your counselors? Are you seeking to walk with the Lord? It's a wonderful word for daily Christian living, to walk. Just to walk through the day with God. He's with you. His Word and His truth are your resource for the day. His name is the reputation you care about the most. You're protecting His name with everything that you say and do and think. You're walking with Him. Isn't that a delightful way to describe the Christian life? Just walk humbly with your God as, as Micah 6, 8 says. Just walk with Him. And that's exactly what our calling is. So God is saying the reason that these corruptions are so provocative is that you were called to be the exact opposite in this world. And then we must turn, uh, E, 
in 2.6c, we must turn others from sin. Notice how he puts it. He says, uh, and turned many from sin. How do we do this? First of all, we communicate the gospel. That's the only way to turn anyone from sin. It's not shaming them into it, making them feel guilty, tell them, tell them that God's going to turn them into toast. That's not going to do it. That never will turn anyone from sin. It'll turn them from some external behavior for a little while, but it will not turn their hearts from sin. What will turn their hearts from sin is to know that there is a God who loves sinners and that they're sons by faith in Jesus Christ. So you've got to communicate the gospel to turn people from sin. Secondly, we have to encourage the saints by example and by word. People will do not what we say, but they'll do basically what we do. Uh, Paul Harvey tells the story of a man named Gray Baker. He was out in the backyard with some of his children and his grandchildren, and he was flipping the hamburgers. And his little three-year-old grandson had a plastic set of golf clubs that they let him play with. And he was out there just swinging this little plastic driver. And all of a sudden, a string of expletives comes from this kid's lips. And he takes his driver and he throws it and goes up in a little tree. And the grandfather... That was an act of judgment, I think. And the grandfather says, what in the world are you doing? He says, well, Grandpa, that's what I saw you do. <laughs> I'm telling you, gentlemen, little eyes that you never thought were watching you are watching you. And it's not just your grandkids. It's someone five years behind you in the workplace, ten years younger than you are in the, in the city, someone in your church pew who who basically thinks you must have it together. And so they're watching some of the things you do you never thought they were watching, that you thought were not even the main point. But they, they notice how you treat your wife and how you speak to your children. They notice whether you respect authority or not. And they notice whether you're scrupulous in the way you keep your records. They do. And that's how you pass down a legacy. So we are the ones who turn people away from sin by communicating the gospel and encouraging them by word and deed. And thirdly, by engaging the discipline of the church. Now, this was the priestly role. As we saw, sometimes they even, uh, in the Old Testament, would do this physically, taking people's lives because of immorality. We don't do that in the New Testament because we're not a theocracy. The theocracy returns at the end of the day. And you notice, in the last day, you notice this in Revelation, when the last day comes, there will be a war. And when Jesus Christ comes back, he is on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. There is violence at the last day. All the evildoers are slain and thrown into eternal perdition. So there is a final warfare and purging of all evil from the saints. But now we live in a mixed world because it's not a theocracy. We're in dispersion. We're waiting for our return to Jerusalem that comes out of heaven. So we don't do it physically, but we do exercise discipline. Turn with me uh, just to the next book in your Bible, which is Matthew, taking you into the New Testament. This is page 1576. And here Jesus speaks about how the church lives in community. 
And he says in Matthew 18, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. So he's saying there's something sacred, not only about your lips, there's something sacred about your church. Sacred about your church. So that if someone sins against you, it is your moral obligation to go to that brother, not just because you're angry, not just because you want vengeance, not just because you want closure, but because you love the church and you love the one who sinned against you. And it's your moral duty to get control of yourself and your personal anger and to deal with that brother as a brother who may be in trouble. He sinned against you and made you angry. But the real problem is not the one you've got of having been ripped off or hurt or sinned against. The real problem is the one who propagated the evil. He's the one with a problem. And so you get control of yourself and your anger and you now go in love and you speak to your brother and say, it seems to me this is what has happened. Am I correct on this? Yes, you are. Well, it seems to me that that's contrary to God's word. Well, yeah, I guess it is. It seems to me you need to repent. Well, I'm not sure I want to do that. Okay, fine. If you don't, I'll come back with another brother and we'll go through this same exercise because, after all, I'm biased because I'm the one you sinned against, uh, allegedly sinned against. Secondly, no one can be convicted on one witness. So you and I are here alone, and we, we would, if we can handle it amicably alone, that's the best. But if we can't, we'll bring another brother, and he'll be the witness who will judge what is happening between you and me. So I go get another brother. Once again, it's for a desire for the honor and glory of God's name. And his name is on this church. And when you have somebody who sinned against one another, his honor demands that we be in repentance. And we have a priestly obligation to care for each other. If you're in Second Presbyterian Church, which is a little less than half of you here, we have a priestly obligation to be in community with one another that is an accountability community. And when flagrant sin goes on and we see it, we cannot just say, well, you know, we all screw up every once in a while. Let's be gracious. That's not grace. That's sentimentality. And it's arrogance. You're going to be kinder than God. God is not only loving, He is holy, and He cares about the sacredness of His church. So we must deal with each other. You bring another brother, the person doesn't repent. In the Presbyterian church, you take it to the church by going to the elders. And you say, you know, I could be wrong, but I think we've got a problem here. We need your help to adjudicate. That's what's to be going on in churches. I find it rarely going on in any church in this city. And there are probably enough people in this room right here to make a change in that. And you say, well, what are we going to do? Become a bunch of litigious lawyers? No, the reason we do have litigious lawyers is because the church isn't doing its business. And people are going to the courts 
the civil courts to get justice because they can't get it in the church anymore because the priests have abandoned their posts and they don't want to be priests anymore. They want to enjoy the blessings that are gradually turning into curses right in their hands. So we've abandoned our role. We've given it over to the state. And look at the lawsuits, the litigation that's going on over there. It's because we're not proclaiming the gospel. People are not coming. They're not being restrained by the Spirit of Christ. They're only being restrained by civil law. And we're flooding our courts because we have no character. And because the church has lost its character. Now, I know every church will deal with this differently. You've got different processes by which you do this. If you don't have a process, why don't you ask your pastor about beginning to think about a process where you can have a just and holy and righteous and loving community of saints that actually hold each other accountable. And if it doesn't work, what does Jesus say you do? Well, you know, you don't want to drive the person away. You don't want to lower your membership roles. No, he says you dismiss him from the church. Treat him like an unbeliever. Because there are a lot of people who belong to the church who really don't trust in Christ. And you'll see it when they get into trouble and you confront them and they don't want anything to do with you. They've now revealed their real faith, which is not faith in Jesus Christ. And it's your moral duty then, like Phinehas did, to execute the law of God within the community of faith. Real love and real justice is done through the law of God, through loving relationships. Now, Paul says, when you do this, you must be very careful. You must be very gentle. There must be a tear in your eye because you know you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel yourself. And apart from the grace of God, you'd be in the same trouble yourself. So we're very gentle with one another. And it's out of reverence for God's name, which is the main point of Malachi 2. It's out of love for the sinner. And it's out of respect for the church of Jesus Christ. It's a sacred community. It's holy. So we don't just tolerate unrepentant sin in the body of Christ. This is what the priests were doing. And before Malachi gets into the marriage problems and the divorce problems and the lack of tithing problems, he starts with the priest and says, this thing has fallen down because you have abandoned your post. And I would say to the men here, All the problems we've got in the churches where the divorce rate in the church now is higher than it is outside the church because we marry more often for one thing. But it's higher. And I say to a bunch of priests, we have abandoned our posts. And you can find the same thing with with, uh, illegalities of all sort in the business community. You'll find professing Christians who are committing those crimes and and, uh, misdemeanors at the same rates because we have abandoned our posts as priests. So we must engage the discipline of the church. I've got a couple of minutes here. Let's move on. F, we must act like messengers of God Almighty. Wow, what a calling. The lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction. We are the spokesmen of God. That is our calling. Wow. Once again, we're not prophets. Well, actually, we are prophets. In the Old Testament, the priests were not prophets. They weren't the organs of revelation. But... They were the ones who took the revelation and applied it in their day. And in that sense, they spoke for God. And so do you. Malachi means my messenger. You're Malachi. That's the point. Lastly, verses 8 and 9, God chastises His priests for their waywardness. We have violated the covenant of Levi. How? One, we have turned from the way. Two, we have caused many to stumble. We've gone through that. And God says in the 
verses 5 and 6 of chapter 18. Um, Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So be careful if we cause someone else to stumble. And we have shown partiality in the law. We are the ones who were supposed to be teaching others and helping them adjudicate according to just practices. We're the ones who are supposed to know the law of God. And we've taken the law that we knew, says Malachi. We've done this, and we have shown partiality. We've either shown partiality to the rich or we've shown partiality to the poor. And in both cases, it is ungodly. And both of those are happening in culture today. Some who are showing impartiality to the rich and some showing impartiality to the poor and perverting justice for whatever reasons they have. And we're to be the ones who know justice and apply it. Lastly, we will, in this case, be despised by and humiliated before the very people from whom we sought favor. So for whatever reasons we seek the favor of other people, it'll be before those people that we end up being humiliated when we abandon the law of God. Okay. Like I said, scholars have said that compared to Malachi, the 8th century prophets look like they're very polite. This is heavy stuff. But what happened was the very core leadership who was supposed to be maintaining the law of God in the community of God abandoned their posts. And that's what provokes God probably more than anything else. So we're the ones who are in the core of this. We're the people of God who are to be the priests for the world. And when we abandon our post, it really does provoke the Lord uh, and we lose his favor. So it doesn't mean that we're saved by works. It means that having been saved by grace, we're still serving an awesome God. So let us leave here with fear, reverence, awe, and gladly as his sons go out into a world and be the priests they were called to be. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for this um, awesome text. It's not one that we would usually pick for our third grade Sunday school class. Uh, and yet, it's, it's in your word. And we will not shy away from it. We will study your word. And we will study your character, all of your character. And please help us to love everything about you that we discover. That we may become like you. And be your sons. Help us to be priests in this world as we go. In Jesus' name, our high priest. Amen. God bless you all.